Be seated. You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're looking at what is a fairly common passage of Scripture. And this is a look at Paul's self-described thorn in the flesh. And I think each of us in our own way can relate to the reality of, the difficulty of, and the unwelcomed presence of a thorn in the flesh. Is that right? Right. Yeah, there's a variety of things that come in a variety of sizes and shapes and lengths of time, but we all share in our disapproval of, our preference against these things, and yet we find ourselves dealing with them on a regular basis. You know, in the Declaration of Independence, there is a promise that is given to all U.S. citizens, and that is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, there is no such clause in the Bible. (laughs) We do have life, and we do have liberty in Christ, but there is no clause that says that God is enamored by, committed to, concerned with our happiness. Many possess a faulty concept of what God is obligated to provide to them. They think that if they come to Christ, if they give a certain amount of money, if they serve a certain amount of hours, and then God is going to give you all that you think you're entitled to and all that you desire to have in your life. You know, there's no shortage of pastor, author, teacher, Christian TV personality that isn't going to tell you that that is what God is most concerned about. Have you ever come across these pastors, these books, these speeches, these paragraphs, whatever it might be? God wants to bless you. God wants to prosper you. God wants to give you your destiny. After all, God is obligated to meet your very dreams and desires. Well, the problem is is that happiness is generally dependent upon Life's circumstances. When things are going well in the home, we're happy. When things are going great at the job, we're happy. When we're enjoying the prime of our health, we're happy. But when home isn't so good, the job isn't so great, and our health is failing, happiness can be hard to come by. So for many, when they aren't happy in the way they have decided that they are entitled to, and they consider themselves to be Christian, what is very common is we begin to question God. God, why are you not allowing me to be happy? God, why are you allowing or orchestrating these unwanted circumstances in my life? Don't you know I deserve to be happy? That's kind of the perspective that a lot of people have. And this is why people will flood to the places where they hear those kinds of messages that God is entitled, God is obligated, God is really concerned with your happiness. And so our sense of happiness, our sense of being entitled to happiness will oftentimes drive us to do things that are inconsistent with the Word of God, it will cause us to have attitudes or expectations that are inconsistent with who God is. For example, it wasn't long ago that I read a quote from a high-profile NFL quarterback who was on the verge of a second divorce, and he said, quote, God wants me to be happy, end quote. Therefore, I'm going to divorce my second wife, and I'm going to go on and find a third wife, And maybe she will make me happy. And if she doesn't make me happy, then God wants me to be happy. So I'll divorce her and I'll go and find a fourth wife, etc., etc., until I find that elusive happiness that I think God has entitled me to have. So as we think about this idea, there's two foundational truths that I think are helpful for us as we think about this process. Number one, God is less concerned with our happiness then He is our holiness. God is less concerned with our happiness than He is our holiness. We can have all the happiness that the world has to offer and have zero holiness in our life. On the other hand, we can have all the holiness that God provides in our union with Him and be perfectly happy at life circumstances, no matter how difficult they are. 
Holiness leads to sanctification. And sanctification is one of those theological words that means we are becoming more and more like Christ. That is what God is most concerned about. A very, very familiar verse in Romans 8.29. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the brethren among many, He would be the firstborn among many brethren. So I am not saying that happiness and Christianity are incompatible. Christ offers something much more satisfying than this temporary and fleeting feeling or sense that we can get in this world that we would call happiness. You know, when I bought a new car, I get pretty happy about that. There was a time in my life when I got a new set of golf clubs and that brought me a lot of happiness. But you know that car, the paint fades and the dings come and the insides wear out and the golf clubs get dirty and they sit in the corner of the garage for months and months and perhaps years on end. I look at those golf clubs and I think, huh, those don't bring me much happiness anymore. Golf clubs haven't changed. They're pretty much the same as they were when I left them there. God is concerned that we be conformed to His image rather than Him being concerned with our being happy. Secondly, these foundational truths is God offers us the promise of joy. Now, as you and I know, and as we've talked about many, many times, joy is to be independent of circumstances. Joy is a deep-seated sense of well-being and contentment and satisfaction in our relationship with the Lord. Our union with Christ should provide for us all of the joy that we will ever need in our life. And when we can find joy, happiness isn't our concern. We can find joy, and as a result of that, be happy even when things aren't going well for us. In this farewell discourse that we've been studying over the last several weeks, we read this in John 15:11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Now let me ask you this question. Very practical. Is Jesus lying to us about having the capacity of possessing the fullness of joy? Is He just saying what the disciples want to hear? Is He pulling their leg? Is He somehow deceiving them? Or is He actually telling them the truth from the very throne of God that we and they can find the fullness of joy in the things that Jesus has said and in the person that He is and in the salvation that He has provided. Joy is independent of our circumstances. Joy is based upon God's love. Joy is based upon our salvation. Joy is based upon the confident hope of an eternity with Him Forever and forever and forever. So those are the foundational truths that kind of set the platter, if you will, for how we understand 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. So let's read these verses together. Paul writes these words, "...because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to begin, number one, we're going to look at the problem. Notice the problem that Paul identifies for himself. Verse 7, he says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, here's the problem, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. That's his problem. There is a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, 
to keep me from exalting myself. So there's two components, two ingredients to this problem. Number one, the thorn. The thorn is the problem. If you've ever had a splinter in your finger, you know how uncomfortable that can be anytime something touches that area of your finger or the area where you've got a splinter. There's this phrase where there is a burr in a horse's saddle. There's a burr in the horse's saddle. When somebody mounts that horse, it doesn't feel good, and the horse rears, and he bucks, and he runs, and he does everything he can to throw that rider off because of the discomfort that that burr in the saddle creates for it. So this thorn is the problem. Paul has this thorn in the flesh. And there's considerable debate about what the thorn may or may not be. First of all, what it is not, it is not the consequence of sin. Paul is not undergoing any kind of discipline in his life or he would have completely rephrased this understanding that he has from this. So that it is not a consequence of sin. And I myself have often wondered... Perhaps this was a thorn in the flesh as a way of making Paul regret his persecution of the church. Maybe this was God's way of keeping Paul humble, of helping Paul to never forget, and as a result of that sin of persecuting the church and being responsible for the unknown number of Christian deaths and the imprisonment of countless others, perhaps this is what's going on. Well, I don't believe that's accurate. I don't believe that this is a consequence of sin or something that Paul had done in his life. So what we do know is this. It is some kind of an external circumstance. There's no way to really know what this thorn is. But as an external circumstance, this is more than likely something that Paul has no ability to control in his life. Now, as I think about this, I think about the presentation of the thorn and all the variety of of, uh, understandings there might be and the uncertainty about what it is. We have to remember that Paul is writing what he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is saying precisely what God wants him to say. So Paul is vague. Paul is very vague about what this thorn is, And as a result of this, you and I I have the ability to take the principle of the thorn in the flesh and apply it to any number of circumstances in our life. Maybe you've thought or said that individual is a thorn in my flesh. That neighbor is a thorn in my flesh. My boss is a thorn in my flesh. There are many, many examples of how something unwanted and uncomfortable can come into our life that we have virtually no control over and it creates a challenge for us that we have to find a way to reconcile in our life. Now this is very, very important and there's not a space for you to write this but perhaps it helps. This is not about the thorn. This whole thing, this whole discussion is not about the specificity of what that thorn might be. Just as when Jesus performed the many, many miracles that He did, it was never about the miracle. It was never about the person, but it was about the purpose of God in and through that action. So the first ingredient to this problem is the thorn. The second ingredient is the messenger. The messenger of Satan. The purpose is to torment us. Whatever the thorn was, because Paul describes it as a messenger of Satan, it is to be understood as a part of our spiritual battle. There may not be anything about this thorn that has the appearance of spirituality attached to it, but based, upon, but based upon the way this is presented to us, it's very clearly a connection to this spiritual battle that you and I are in every moment of our lives. Are you aware of that? Are you aware that you are in a constant 
spiritual battle for your affection, for your attention, for your obedience, for your submissiveness, for your service, for your willingness. We are in a constant spiritual battle. And this is what Paul understands from this external circumstance that God has allowed this to be a part of his spiritual battle. And this is what Paul, I believe, wants us to understand. Now what we also need to understand about our enemy, Satan himself, is that the enemy is very, very clever. He's very, very shrewd. He's very, very deceitful. And the Bible describes him as one who masquerades as an angel of light But in reality, he roams the earth seeking someone to devour. The Bible calls him a liar and a murderer, the ruler of darkness, the accuser. So let me go back up to the NFL quarterback that I mentioned. The tormentor would come to him and say, you know, she's not doing her part. You should be a lot happier than this. You probably ought to ditch that bag and find somebody who's younger and snappier and happier and more of this, that, and the other. And he says, wow, that sounds like a pretty good idea. That's probably going to make me happy. But you know, the consequence of divorce in virtually every relationship is not joy. It's not an improvement of circumstance unless you're talking about somebody who's getting beat up every day and somebody who's getting neglected and abused in those ways. But the enemy comes masquerading as an angel of light when in reality he seeks to bring death. So the enemy wants us to focus on the thorn rather than the purpose that God has given to us while we are on this earth. Do you believe God has given you a purpose? Is your purpose the fulfillment of your destiny and uh, the increase of your bank account and a shiny new car and a really nice house and a vacation home in some really um, advantageous place? Is, is that really what it's all about? Is that the purpose God has for us? You see, when our purpose is to be conformed to the image of His Son and to serve Him in the context of a love relationship based upon our salvation... Our purpose is radically different from what many Christians falsely believe. So we have this problem. We have this thorn, this thing that's bothering us. And we have this tormentor who desires to help us to focus on the thorn as opposed to focusing on the purposes that God has for us. And so secondly, in our outline, we notice the purpose of the thorn. Paul says, and this is an abbreviation, this is the first part and the last part of verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. To keep me from exalting myself, Paul repeats a second time. So Paul explains to us why this thorn has come to him. It is because of the greatness of the revelations that God has given to him. Think about this. Paul was raised a Jew. He trained under the most highly respected rabbi of the day. He was, by his own description, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was zealous for the law. He was an expert for the law, of the law. He sought to live out his love for God by killing and jailing Christians. And then all of a sudden, he is miraculously saved on the road to Damascus. And God has called him to be the chief apostle to the Gentiles. And through Paul, nearly half of our New Testament would be penned. He would travel over the known world at least four times. He would evangelize. He would plant churches. He would disciple. He was given the very mysteries of God, the eternal Word of God, that existed from eternity past in the heart of God, given to Paul, to share with mankind for all time. Those are some pretty great revelations that God had chosen to give to Paul. The human tendency is to say, well, you know, I'm pretty special. Why did God choose me? Because I'm pretty good, you know. God looked at all the earth and He said, you are the best of the rest and I'm going to choose you because you're so special. Is that what God does? 
No. God chooses out of His own sovereign will, and through that choice, He gives to Paul these great revelations that fill the pages of our New Testament. And Paul says, to keep me from exalting myself, because that is my tendency, if anybody has a reason to boast in the flesh, I do, that's what Paul says. And then he repeats it a second time as a way of emphasizing the tendency that he has to be boastful in himself, to keep me from exalting myself. God has given me this thorn in the flesh, a messenger to torment me. So what Paul recognizes in this purpose is that there is a divine purpose for the thorn. Some people experience the thorn and they say, huh, God isn't being very kind. God's being kind of mean. I don't feel like I deserve this. I haven't done anything wrong. Aren't there worse people than me that God could allow this thorn to come into their life instead of me? But what we fail to recognize is that the thorn serves a divine purpose. We're not to focus on the thorn. We are to focus on the purpose of the thorn and how that is going to aid us in being conformed to the image of His Son. Now, you and I can agree on this. The thorn is painful. It's difficult. It's frustrating. It's unwelcomed but it has a divine purpose. So the first purpose that we can deduce from the Bible is this. The thorn exposes our need for God. Think about this. When you've got a small child and they're outside having the time of their life running and jumping and laughing and playing and they fall and they skin their knee, what's the first thing they do? They come running home, tears in their eyes, because I need Mama. Only Mama can comfort me in this great pain that I have. I need my mother. Sometimes it's Dad, but usually it's Mom. So this problem that this young child faces in their life reinforces for them their need for their parent. And in the same way, this thorn is to reinforce in us our need for God. Paul needed to stay humble. He recognized his own propensity towards boastfulness and pride, and he would say, I need to be kept humble. I am going to exalt myself. I'm going to think I'm all that when I'm not. So to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me humble... God has allowed this unknown thing to come into my life to serve that divine purpose of humility. Is humility divine? Oh, it certainly is. Do you need a little humility in your life? You no, know, you probably do. Let me ask you this question. How many of you like to be right all the time? <laughs> Who likes to be wrong? Who likes to admit when they're wrong? And here's the worst part. How many of us think we're right all the time? <laughs> you know, the, the source of so much conflict is, well, you know, I don't think you're right. I think I'm right. Well, I'm going to prove you wrong. That's my purpose today, this week, this month, is to find a way to prove you wrong. Because I have to be right. So humility serves a divine purpose. Specifically, Paul identifies the need to be humble, but because we can apply the principle of the thorn to so many parts of our life, the divine purpose could be humility. It could be something completely unrelated to humility. So the thorn exposes our need for God. Number two, the thorn creates dependence upon God. It's one thing to say, you know, I need God. It's a very different thing to feel how much I need God. You know, you can say, I need some food. Right? I, I need food. I have to have fuel. I, I need to eat things in order to have energy. It's a very different thing to be dependent upon food, right? To feel the need for food means I'm going to eat at any cost. And it doesn't matter who's in my way. And may not even matter what it is, but I'm going to eat something because I feel an intense need for food. 
And so when we have this thorn in our flesh and we recognize that we have a need for God, this should enlighten our, our understanding of our dependency upon God. Now we'll see that a little bit more in verse 8. But think about this. In the cyclical history of Israel, there was this mountain peak experience there was this wandering away from God. There was this great sense of discipline or this very unwelcome circumstance. And they said, oh no, we need God. We've strayed away from God. We repent. We love you. We want to come back with you. The problem reminded them of their need for God. And so they would rebel and they'd get back to the mountaintop experience. And it wouldn't be long before they would forget about God and they'd get back in that cycle, have a big, big problem. And you know what? We need God again. We've wandered away and we've rebelled and we need Him. So there is this dependency upon God that the thorn is supposed to expose in our lives and sometimes that does it better than anything else. I've talked about this and said this many, many times. We can learn by the enlightenment, the revelation of God's Word or we can learn by the heat of discipline from God's Word. Which would you prefer? Well, it depends on whether we get enlightened and obey, or whether we get in that cycle of rebellion and have a big problem and, well, I need God. I need God more than I thought I did or more than I've been living. So there is this dependency upon God that the thorn is to highlight in our lives. Thirdly, the thorn causes spiritual growth. As we recognize our need for Him and as we are reminded of the depth of our dependency upon Him, the result should be that we draw near to Him. That we come to Him and we say, God, I don't like this thing. This is very difficult, very unwelcomed. I would really, really, really like this to go away and I would really like it to go away really quickly. But I want you to accomplish your purpose in me through this thorn. There is a purpose of this thorn, and it is to cause spiritual growth. James 1, 2 and 4, probably some of the most disappointing verses in the Bible. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Well, how much of an oxymoron is that? In Paul's vernacular, James would say, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you are dealing with a thorn in the flesh knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, you and I would prefer to have spiritual growth come in other ways than the thorn, right? But God has a purpose in the thorn. As we looked at in the farewell discourse and as we looked at this process of bearing fruit and the reality that God will prune us in order to maximize the fruit production, sometimes that pruning will show up in the form of a thorn, something that we don't want and we don't like in our life. Well, when this began in Paul's life, he didn't understand that. He's not writing this in the beginning or in the middle of this experience, this spiritual battle that he's in. He is writing this after he has come out of this growth that has been the result of this thorn in his flesh. Now let's notice the plea that we see in this. <clears throat> Verse 8, Concerning this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So that word implore means to request urgently. Paul is a, was a desperate man. He was probably pleading through tears, crying out to God, begging God to take this away. When Paul says, I prayed to the Lord three times, I can promise you he didn't say, God, please take this away. God, please take this away. God, please take this away. That was not the three times that Paul prayed for this thing to be removed from him. I would have imagined that this took place over the period of many, many weeks and perhaps even many, many months as Paul wrestled with this external circumstance, disliked it intensely, and begged God to take it away. 
Paul was an evangelist. Paul was a missionary. Paul was a church planner. He was a disciple maker. He was probably the most committed Christian ever to walk the face of the earth with the greatest of missions, with the highest of intentions. And he is begging God to take this thorn away from me because if you do, I can serve you better. I can serve you longer. I can serve you more effectively. But what does God say at Paul's urgent request to remove the thorn? Paul says, God says, no. No. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take that thorn out of your flesh. I don't remember where I read this. It's not original to me. God will not protect you from what He will use to perfect you. Think about that. God will not protect you from what He will use to perfect you. You see, when we recognize that this thorn, whatever it might be, has a divine purpose, and the ultimate divine purpose that God has for us, that we be conformed to the image of His Son, God is not going to eliminate these thorns from our lives because it is God's design and desire that these thorns would perfect us in the image of Christ. Whoever wrote that had a very divine insight into this principle and into this truth. This is something that we should repeat to ourselves over and over and over again to the point when we to, to the point where when we face something in our life that we don't like, we repeat this. God will not protect me or exempt me from what He will use to perfect me. And so we we accept this thorn into our lives, knowing that it has a divine purpose in mind, and therefore we want to cooperate with God's purpose not rebel against the thorn, not shake an angry fist to God about the thorn, to not turn our back in indifference to God because of the thorn. But we work back up on our outline and we recognize our need for Him and cling. So, Paul receives this answer of no, but that's not the end of what God told Paul in the midst of his struggle with the thorn and the ultimate revelation that God gave to him that is in our Bible today. A divine insight is not the same as divine revelation. Don't confuse that. Paul is given divine revelation. Notice the provision that God provides in the know. Verse 9a, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God didn't say, no, tough luck for you, find a way to deal with it. I guarantee you somebody has got it worse than you. Just pull up your bootstraps like a good faithful American and just walk on. That's not what God says. What does God say? God says, my grace is sufficient for you. No matter what we go through, Paul, no matter what your thorn is, my grace is sufficient for you. I wonder to the depth that we believe that to be completely true. You see, when our first instinct at the arrival of some unwelcome circumstance is begging God to get rid of it, in a sense we're saying God's grace isn't sufficient enough to get me through this, so God's just got to take it away. So there's two parts of this provision that God makes to us and has revealed to Paul. Number one, The grace that is sufficient to save us is also sufficient to sustain us. 
Think about the grace that it takes for the putrid, despicable, wicked men and women that we are to be saved and presentable to a holy and a righteous God. Think about how much grace it takes to accomplish that. Think about visiting someplace in the depths of the inner city, the, the worst of the worst, the individual who was on the curb sleeping, reeking of wine, sleeping in their own filth, And you say to that individual, you know what, I love you and I'm going to take you to my home and I'm going to clean you and I'm going to feed you and I'm going to provide medical care for you and I am going to adopt you into my family and you are going to be a part of my family for as long as I live. Think about the kind of grace it would take for you and I to be willing to go and do that. To a much greater degree, to a much deeper depth of sin and depravity, that is exactly what God has done for you and I. The grace that is sufficient to save us is more than sufficient to sustain us through whatever it is that we face in our lives. But we have a fundamental, foundational question that you and I must answer for ourselves. And that question is this. Is He enough. Well, what's the answer to that? Well, I'm sure God's enough, but what's the reality of our experience? See, I believe that sometimes the thorn that comes to us is a way for us to recognize the very truth that we intellectually ascribe to, and that is God is enough. That's one of the great things about the story of Job. Job had everything anyone could ever ask for, and God took all of that away. And what was his response? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Did he stay faithful to the Lord? Was he committed to the Lord? Was the Lord enough for him? See, that's the message, I believe in the story of Job, is that God is enough. So the writers of Scripture overwhelmingly declare again and again and again that He is enough. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. A couple of verses later in 16 and 17, for all the fullness we, we excuse me, for, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.33 And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. Romans 5.2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.10 As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 2 Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of grace for every good deed. Are they blowing smoke? Or is that the truth? Is that the reality of their experience? Or is that some psychological self-help tidbit that they put in in order to help us feel better about the unwanted circumstances of life? Is He sufficient? Intellectually, yes, He is. Experientially, is He sufficient? That's what we have to determine for ourselves. So, why is it that many don't find sufficiency in the grace of God? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. One is, they have a very faulty view of these thorns in the flesh. This isn't a divine purpose. There's no benefit that can come to me from this. God's just being mean and vindictive and spiteful. Spiteful, He's punishing me for something that I don't know about, something that I probably don't even deserve. So there is this faulty view. 
The other one is this. Rather than going deep with God, like Job had to do, like Abraham had to do, like Moses had to do, like David had to do, like all of the disciples had to do, rather than going deep with God, they would prefer the removal of the thorn and let me just coast on the crest of the wave and shout all the platitudes about the love of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God, but please don't let me have to experience those realities for myself by going through the worst of what life has to offer. So we can go deep with God and find that His sufficiency is, that His grace really is sufficient for us, or we can kind of skate by on religious jargon. Now the second part of this provision is this, His power is sufficient to enable us to thrive. Not only is His grace sufficient enough to sustain us, but the power that is ours through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to enable us to not just survive, but to thrive. That means to excel above your circumstances. To not become an Eeyore and just sit in a mud puddle and dump muddy water on yourself and say, woe is me. Boy, life is hard. When will this ever end? We have the ability to th- we have the ability to thrive because the power of God resides in us. The same power that created the universe that we live in, the same power that part of the Red Sea, the same power that crumbled the walls of Jericho, the same power that saved Daniel and the lions den, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power is able to give us the ability to to thrive in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He guides us. He teaches us. He comforts us. And He empowers us to live above our circumstances so that God can conform us to the image of His Son. Well, one of the other questions that comes to my mind is why don't we experience the power of God like the Holy Spirit, like the Bible promises? I believe that intellectually. Why can't I experience that in the nitty-gritty details of my life? Well, it's possible that we have not truly emptied ourselves before Him and made a true commitment to serve Him whatever the cost. You see, what God says to Paul is this. He says, my power is perfected in what? In your weaknesses. You see, when we recognize our spiritual weaknesses, our inabilities, our unwillingness, it is in those times that the power of God works and acts and takes us out of the natural man into the supernatural man or woman that God has recreated us to be. His strength is fulfilled in our frailty. Are you weak? Are you in need? Are you an unfinished project? Do you like to really admit that and acknowledge that and talk about it and display it for everyone to see? No, I don't want to do that. Hey, I know i got weaknesses, but please don't expose them to me. I don't want to really deal with them. I want to just kind of skate around them as much as I possibly can. We see when we recognize our need for God and our frailty before Him, it is then that the power of God has the ability to strengthen us beyond ourselves. So that's one of the reasons why it's possible that we don't experience His powers. We've not really emptied ourselves before Him and come before Him as weak feeble and frail individuals. Second possibility is that we just don't walk in obedience to Him. We live a self-willed, self-directed life that's designed to suit ourselves and please ourselves. And I got God right back here in my hip pocket in case I ever need Him. But by and large, I'm going to do my own thing. So if that is our experience, not walking in obedience to Him, 
or that we haven't really emptied ourselves before him in submission, then it's very, very probable that we will not experience the power that God has made available to us, and as a result of that, we will not find his grace to be sufficient. I'll tell you this, superficial Christianity will never find sufficiency in the grace of God. Superficial religious expression will never find sufficiency in the grace of God. Lastly, number five, notice the pronouncement. Second part of verse nine. Most gladly, therefore, after God has revealed this truth to Paul, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That was the aha moment for Paul. The light had turned on. God had revealed to him all that was involved in this process of having this thorn in my flesh. And so what Paul says, as I deal with my thorns, as I give them to the Lord, as they make me dependent upon Him, and as they draw me close to Him, then I will walk in His power. Then I will realize the sufficiency of His grace. Paul isn't going to celebrate the thorn, but he will welcome it gladly. Why? Because thorns bring on the power of God. Now, wait a minute. You're going way too far with this. (laughs) I had a friend, one of the churches I served on staff with, and he made a commitment that, like Abraham, he wanted to be called the friend of God. That's what he prayed. It was his earnest, heartfelt desire. And he shared that. You know, God has laid this on my heart, and more than anything else, I want to be called the friend of God. He had the hardest year of his life after he made that commitment. And I believe that's why many of us are unwilling to pray that prayer and to make that kind of commitment because we don't want to invite the thorns to come so that the power of God may rest on us. We'd rather it just be easy, comfortable, convenient, but that may not accomplish God's purposes in our lives. So as we look at where Paul began and where he ended, we see this amazing transformation that was brought to his life through a proper biblical understanding of God's purpose in his life. And that is very simply this. When I am weak, that's when I'm going to be strong. I'm not talking about going into the gym and trying to bench press 180 pounds and can't do it. I'm not talking about that. When you are spiritually weak, when we come before the Lord and we are broken, and we are willing to be shaped and molded into what he wants us to be, when we are weak in that way, it is then that we are going to be, be strong for the Lord. Jesus said this in Matthew 16:25, "Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." Lastly, I'm sorry, number, number six, notice the product. Paul says this in verse 10, "Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul takes the specific reality of this thorn that he had and he applies it to virtually every aspect of life. It is so vague that you and I can look at this principle and say, well, I don't have that. That doesn't apply to me. What we can say is, yeah, I got a thorn. I don't know what Paul's was. I know what mine is. And I know I feel the same way Paul does. And so this same biblical principle is applicable to me today. Whatever that thorn is in our life, the same principle guides us through that. God has a purpose. His grace is sufficient to sustain us through it. His power will make us strong to overcome it so that we can be conformed in the image of His Son. And Paul says, because I understand that, I am content. That word means well-pleased. Paul says, I am well-pleased with weaknesses. They don't bother me. They don't make me fear, feel inferior. I am well content with my weaknesses, with all of these other things that go on in my life, 
Because when I go through these things and I recognize my weakness and my need for God and my dependency upon Him, God is going to make me strong. Paul found peace and joy and contentment in the midst of what I would guess to be one of the most difficult periods in his life, this thorn thing. And he found victory in it through Christ. So the experiences that we have in our lives, those things that will naturally frustrate us, distract us, bother us, anger us, hurt us, whatever those things are, we can supernaturally rise above them because of our union with Christ and see the evidence of God's power at work within us so that we are well content, well pleased with whatever those things are because it is in those moments that Christ makes me strong. When Paul came to the end of himself, what did the world see? They saw Christ. Same thing is true for you and I today. When we come to the end of ourselves, those around us will see Christ. So Paul understood this divine purpose. And this purpose became far more important to him than did the removal of the thorn. This thorn exposed his need for God. It created a greater dependency upon God. And it caused growth in his walk with God. And that's the same thing it will do for you and I today. So let me ask you this question. As you bow your heads and as you close your eyes, how are you doing with your thorns? Father, we give you thanks that you are a good and a sovereign God. We thank you that you are always at work, even though we may not see it, and sometimes we don't even like it. But we know that you are at work, and we know that you work for our good, and it is your desire that we be conformed to the image of your Son. Father, I pray that through your Word and through the work of your Spirit, you would continue to break through the hardness of our heart and those human faulty understandings that we have, those things that resist us from going deep with you, that you would expose them to us, enable us to see the ugliness that they are, and birth within us a renewed desire to find strength in our weakness as we give ourselves to you. Father, we know that's good for us, but we also know it's going to be hard. And I pray that we would desire the good more than we would prefer to avoid the hard. Would you work in us? Would you refresh us spiritually? Would you give to us a renewed sense of your presence, of your promises, of your purpose for us? Would we, your children, come to you as our loving, gracious, and heavenly Father? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.